We've been walking through the book of Galatians in a teaching series called No Other Gospel. And uh, last Sunday was my first Sunday in the pulpit after being off for several weeks. And we looked at uh, the examples of sonship and heirship that Paul used to uh, convey or communicate the temporary guardianship of the law. And when I say law, I'm talking about God's commandments. We were in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Just a, a brief recap. He, Paul described how the law is like a father who oversees his son until the son becomes an adult or like a master who oversees his slave until that slave is set free. The law serves as a guardian for only a certain period of time, just as fathers and masters serve as guardians for a certain period of time. According to Paul, the guardianship of the law, it ends when a sinner repents and trusts in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This is when they enter adulthood in a sense and are delivered from the guardianship of the law. This is when they are freed from their slavery to the elementary principles of this world, which basically has to do with trying to earn your way into heaven. And Paul, in, in his, in his uh, message in, in the previous text, talked about how going back under the law of Moses would be like in a way, in my example, would be it'd be like me going back under my parents' guardianship. It's like going back to childhood, going back under your parents' supervision and guardianship. And this is what Paul was talking about. And for somebody like me, this would make, pretty much for any adult, but especially somebody like me, it'd make absolutely no sense at 51 years old with a family. I've been out of my parents' home for over 30 years. I don't need physical guardians I take care of myself in a sense. Spiritually, I'm in Christ through faith. I'm, I'm fully justified. I'm adopted. I'm an heir. I don't need the law as a guardian. Those are the parallels that Paul was kind of pointing to. And those false teachers that were throughout Galatia and other parts of the other regions, they were uh, the Judaizers, they were trying to persuade these Galatians to go back under the law, to go back home and live with mama. They were saying, if you want to be justified before God, you need faith plus works of the law. You, in a sense, need another gospel, not the true gospel. And Paul has been saying repeatedly over and over, especially in the previous text, no, the Galatians do not need to go back to the law. They don't need to go under the law. They do not need the law's guardianship. They are in Christ through faith. They are justified. It's complete. It's done. It's finished. They are, in a sense, spiritual adults. I don't have to go back to those elementary principles or teachings. This is what he was saying. In the next section, Paul is continuing to reason with his audience by reminding them of their past, where they came from, what they formerly believed, and he rebukes them for trying to go back, for actually listening to the Judaizers and trying to go back. And in the last verse of this text we're going to be looking at this morning, he makes a statement that, that ultimately reveals his concern. And it also reveals his discouragement 
over the entire situation that was playing out in these churches through the province of Galatia. Please take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 4. Our focus will be on verses 8 through 11. I thought of going further, but after about six or seven pages on these verses, I thought they're not going to want to hear a two-and-a-half-hour sermon. There's probably two people in here that would be down with that, and the rest, no way. So I decided to break it up. I'd like to pray before we get to work. Father, once again, we humble ourselves. We bow our hearts before you in submission. We ask that you teach us and you train us in accordance with your word this morning, in accordance with the gospel, which is justification by faith alone. We yield to you. We submit to you. We ask that you train us. If we need to be convicted of sin, of idolatry, or any of these sorts of things that these Galatians were, were dealing with, then, then convict us of that. And Lord, we also pray that you would encourage us. We know you will toward the end of this message. And so uh, we just yield to you. We ask that you be glorified during this time through this message. Help me to bring you glory by accurately describing your word. Give me clarity of speech and mind. May your spirit work through me. May it work in the lives and hearts of your people. May it work in the lives and hearts of those. If there be anyone here who, who does not yet know Jesus in a saving way, we pray that your spirit would prevail upon them. Teach us this morning. We yield to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's pick up where we left off last Sunday. We're going to pick it up at verse 8. This is what Paul says in the very next line. Keep in mind, back in the day, none of this had chapter and verse. It was all just one consistent and perpetual teaching, and so somebody added verses to help me. Uh, but in verse 8, this is what he says next. Formally, he's saying to the Galatians, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Stop there. Paul is basically reminding his audience of the time back before when they did not know God and were slaves to, to things and creatures and, and, and myths and idols that ultimately were not gods or God. We know that the, the Galatians were Gentiles. We know that they were not acquainted with the God of the Bible. These people worshipped pagan gods and goddesses. And some of them were, were into astrology and watched the signs of the zodiac, versions of that long before our day. Others within these churches, they worshipped the, the deities of ancient Greece, really ancient Greco-Roman religion. In fact, at Lystra, which was a city in this province of Galatia, there was a temple to Zeus. We've heard of Zeus. In Iconium, they worshipped the mother goddess Zizimene. All through Galatia, people belonged to the Roman imperial cult. They even worshipped in these areas, in these provinces, in these cities. They even worshipped the emperors. The Roman emperors were thought of to be gods. And yet, None of these so-called deities were actual 
gods. They were nothing more than mere idols. The Caesars, who, who, who led the Roman Empire, were nothing more than idols and, and false gods and, 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 and Zeus and all of these things. They're all human concoctions. They're man-made gods that are there to serve man's needs and desires and wants. This is the, the religion of the Galatians prior to Paul coming and preaching the gospel, prior to them coming to know Christ, prior to them coming to know God, as he says in verse 8. He's saying, do you remember who you used to be? I think it's important for us to do as he says here, to kind of reflect and remember from where we came. Sadly, there are a great many Christians that go beyond that and they dwell on who they were and where they've come from. But it's okay to look back at times and to remember where we've come from. Do we realize that, that we, like the Galatians, have been delivered from idols and false gods? We have been. And, and maybe we didn't go to some kind of a temple and, and worship at, at the foot of some stone carving, but we, at bare minimum, worshiped ourselves. Maybe our spouses or girlfriends, we worshiped sex, we worshiped drugs, we worshiped alcohol. It's okay to look back on occasion. Paul is saying, I, do you remember where you were prior to me coming 18 months ago and preaching the gospel? These people were idolaters. They worshiped false gods just like Americans. Many Americans worship presidents, Trump, Biden, all those who came before. You know, because of this idolatry, this false religion that these Galatians were, were mixed up with prior to Paul coming and preaching the gospel, prior to their salvation, there were demonic influences at work. Demonic influences were at work. They're always at work in these false religions. They're always at work in, in idolatry. You know, bowing down to false gods as they did, it, it brought a real spiritual bondage. Such bondage is the natural condition of humanity. I like what the 16th century Swiss philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau captured, uh, what he said about this reality, and he captured kind of the essence of this bondage and this, this global slavery to idols. He said this, man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. What he's actually saying is that man isn't actually born free. The, the illusion of freedom is present at birth but it doesn't take long for us to show that we are actually slaves in chains. Bare minimum, we are enslaved to our own natures, our own sinfulness, our own depravity, and our own self-worship. This is what he means. Man is born free, and everywhere he is in chains, nobody's putting him in chains. He's in chains by himself. MacArthur uh, kind of captures the essence of this verse here, this idolatry 
uh, in his commentary by uh, describing a time when he visited a large Buddhist shrine where scores of men and women and even some children were, quote, bowing down to a giant stone image of Buddha, reciting prescribed prayers, going through various incantations, and making offerings of incense and food. And he continues in this commentary, in, in this recollection of this, this thing that he saw, and he describes in it his broken heart and his sadness and his desire as he's watching this play out, his desire, literal, to, literal desire, just to go ahead and shout out. And what he wanted to say was, why are all of you doing this? Don't you know that that image is only a piece of stone carved by men? There is no God here. Buddha can't help you. He himself is long dead physically and spiritually and will eternally remain dead. If you continue to trust in him, you too will die and forever remain dead. This is what's going through his mind as he's watching these people worship this idol in a modern-day context. And this is who the Galatians were, going to these various temples and bowing down and kissing the feet of of wooden idols and, and, and carved stone idols and things that, that men created. You know, there was a, a time when the Galatians were in chains themselves. And since they did not know God, they did not know any better, did they? It's amazing how this works. When, when a person comes to know the true God, that is when they begin to realize the idolatry they were involved in. All Paul is doing here is pointing to this period in their lives. He's trying to remind them of where they came from. And his ultimate concern is, why do you want to go back? Because that's where you're headed. Before Christ, these people were enslaved to idols. And chronologically speaking, this was less than two years ago for them. Eighteen months to be precise. Paul is saying, don't, don't dwell, but remember where you came from. Do you not realize these people who have infiltrated your churches are trying to take you back? That religion that you were part of before couldn't save you, and you came to realize that when you heard the gospel and the Spirit moved in power. Why are you trying to go back to that which cannot save you? That which does not add to your justification. In fact, it takes away from it. It robs you. It strips you of Christ. Why would you go back? Can you imagine how frustrated he must have been at this point? Verses 9 and 10, and this is exactly what he expresses here. This concern, it's a grave concern. This is no joke here, folks. It's not, it's not you know, a, a simple mistake or a bad idea to try to go back to the old dead religion. It, it's, it's a deadly game. He says, but now that you have come to know God, remember, before you knew God, you were enslaved idols, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, 
How can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to become once more? You observe, listen to this, you observe days and months and seasons and years. Notice the punctuation. You see, the Galatians come to know God 18 months earlier through the preaching of the gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit who regenerates and illuminates spiritually dead sinners. John 3, 3 through 8, Ephesians 2, 5. They came to know the true God through the preaching of the gospel, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's how they came to know God. They didn't discover God on their own. What they discovered on their own were idols, and they stuck to them. They had a, a moment of divine transformation. And, and we think to ourselves, you know, we, we're people who believe in the perseverance of the saints that we will not lose our salvation. But look at these warnings. Part of us not losing our salvation has to do with these warnings and us heeding these warnings. We actually are active participants in not losing it, not in that we ourselves can keep it, but we are warned to flee from this stuff. It's all part of God's grand scheme and plan for us. You have a part in that. Now, you ultimately will not lose it because it's forged in Christ. But why do we have all of these warnings that seem to tell us that it can be lost? It cannot be lost, but don't fool around with this stuff. This is a, a, a deadly game. You know, part of God preserving us, part of Him preserving us all the way to the finish line, it, it involves and includes all of these warnings for us to stay on guard and to stay away from idolatry and these sorts of things, for us to not go back. That's part of his plan and, and scheme and how he makes it happen. He doesn't just do it by osmosis where we don't have an active part in this. This is an admonition. It is a warning. You guys have been saved. Don't go back to the old religion so you come across as not being saved. You're in danger here. And we need to know that there is, there is no knowing the true God apart from the gospel and Holy Spirit. This is how they came to know the true living God. What they were doing now was not a work of the Holy Spirit by trying to go back. That's a work of Satan. Satan spends all of his time interacting with us and trying to get us, once we are saved, trying to get us to go back to square one. And that's what's happening here. But ultimately, there's no knowing God apart from the gospel, apart from the spirit. That's how they came to know God. And Paul is simply saying, why are you trying to go back once you've come to know him? Or better yet, he's come to know you. This is a, a warning that every Christian needs to heed. Don't just rest on the idea that you can't lose your salvation. You cannot. But why would you want to have a bumpy road all the way to glory because you don't heed God's warnings? This idolatry, it just brings despair and heartache. There's no way for a Christian to live. Now, you can't know the true living God apart from the gospel and Holy Spirit. You cannot. A person can detect the existence and, and power of God by, by looking at nature, Romans 1.20, right? That way all men are without excuse. And we call this general revelation. 
But the fact of the matter is, nature can go no further. I can stare at Half Dome and marvel at, at the power of God. I can, I can stand on the precipice of a 3,000-foot-tall cliff, which I just did, and I am scared to death of heights, at the Grand Canyon. And I can marvel at how God's finger could carve that out so easily. But the Grand Canyon and the Half Dome don't say, Phil, you're a sinner and you need the gospel. They don't tell me that. They just tell me there's a God and he's got insane power. That's general revelation, but nature can go no further. It cannot give me my diagnosis, nor can it give me the remedy. It cannot tell me that I'm a sinner that needs Christ. It cannot lead me to Christ. We need special revelation for those things to happen, not general. We need special. Without special revelation, there's no coming to know God. There's no coming to know the true God. There's no intimacy with God. There's no salvation. There's nothing. What is special revelation? It is the Word of God. It is the Bible. It is the gospel. It is the Word of God, the gospel of God, applied by the Holy Spirit. It's the illumination and the regeneration and these things that happen in spiritually dead bodies. God raises them to life and, and, and now they can see God finally and now they can understand God and they can look at Half Dome and they can say, well, wow, God sure is powerful, but I also need Jesus because I'm a sinner bound for hell. It's special revelation that does this. And this is what the Galatians experienced. These, these were bona fide real believers some would dismiss that and say, well, maybe they weren't real believers because they were trying to give themselves over to idols. There isn't a Christian who's ever lived who hasn't attempted to give themselves back to the old idols. We all do it. And that's why we have these admonitions and warnings in Scripture. Stay away from them. Don't touch that. It's hot. And Christians act like, well, I'm saved by grace, so it's okay. No. Grace not only saves, it preserves and protects. It admonishes us to stay away from these things. These people came to know the true God for the first time ever after worshiping idols for decades or however long it was through special revelation, through the preaching of the gospel, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They came to know the true God. The Holy Spirit opened their eyes and changed their hearts these people came to know Him. The Word of God then, the gospel, it replaces the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. That's how He talks about the way the world thinks about these things or any effort to try to save yourself. He says the Word of God, the gospel then, supernaturally, it replaces those false teachings. It replaces this false religion that says that you can somehow earn your justification through works of the flesh through works of the law. Ultimately, what Paul is saying here is that the Galatians had been liberated and set free from the slavery that is associated with false religion and works righteousness. But Paul is overwhelmingly concerned that they are trying to go back to that old way and that old dead religion. Trying to go back to earning their way with God. That's what they came out of. And he says, now you're listening to these false teachers and you're trying to go back to it. If, if, if it weren't possible for us to somehow go back to these things, then why is Paul so concerned? It's a mistake to think that we can't be lured back somehow 
The scripture even talks about shipwrecking your faith. If you, if you go back to this, you shipwreck your faith. Quite honestly, Paul is just confounded by their behavior. How can you go back to false religion after coming to know God? How can you return to the worthless, worldly, elementary principles that enslaved you after you've come to know God? Better yet, after God has come to know you. How do you go back to this stuff? This, this is like a husband marrying his wife and making vows and then going back to his old lovers. This is the Israelites after being delivered in the Exodus going to the golden calf while Moses is away. That's what this is. If it weren't possible, why are we being warned about it? It is possible. And I, I love the meaning of this phrase here. He says, how do you go back after coming to know God, but more importantly, after being known by God? And I love that, to be known by God. It, it, it means to be known by God intimately in a, in a loving relationship. The, the, the Hebrew version of this Greek word for known, it, it's, it's used in, in, in Genesis, in, in the early chapters of Genesis, where it says that, Adam knew his wife, and then she gave birth to a son. To be known is to be known at the deepest, most intimate level. For Adam and Eve, it was, what? A sexual relation. That's how you know your wife. That's how you know a person at the deepest level. And that's why sex outside of marriage is so destructive. But it, it has that kind of deep, intimate meaning. There's no sexual connotation here with God knowing us but it means to be, to be known in and out, in, in the depths of relationship, to be loved by God in, in, the, in the deepest possible way. That's how God knew them. How could you go back after being known and loved by God like this? Do you not know that you are privileged? Not everyone gets this. Not everyone experiences this. Just as not everyone gets married. The Greek word here is, is gnosko. It's really a, a neat word. A, a variant of the exact same verb is used in Romans 8.29 where it says, Those whom God foreknew, progonosko, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Progonosko is very similar to gnosko. It just basically means to, to be known intimately and loved in advance before the foundation of the world. That's, that's how God knew and loved these Galatians before they ever existed, before creation existed. Gnosko carries the same meaning, but it's in real time. It's not a, a foreknowledge and a forelove. It is active and right now in the present. The Galatians were gnosko, not pro-gnosko. They were gnosko. They were, they were known right then intimately. They were, they were loved intimately by God as his dear children. That's gnosko. And Paul's question is very, very simple. Why would the objects of God's all-satisfying love 
his children, those are the objects. Why would they go back to the depleted, empty, soul-starving, false religion of works righteousness? How do you go back after you've tasted and seen the glory of God and the, and the true love of God? How do you go back? He's thinking, why would they re-enslave themselves to systems that do not save, do not sanctify, do not satisfy, do not sustain? Why go back? He, he can't get his mind around this. And I think making it worse is just the, the chronology of it. it it's, it's 18 months. How do you go back? Less than two years later. I mean, what do we think when this happens? When, 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 we, when we serve alongside or, or fellowship alongside of people who, who are seemingly Christians and then they go back to the world, we always cast that off as they weren't really converted. And I think that's here as well. Paul is thinking that. Well, well maybe. But wait, I was there. I, I saw it. He's He's confounded. He, he can't understand how, how anyone, from his own personal experience, after being loved by God, which is the richest, truest, deepest, most perfect, most faithful love ever known. If, if you've tasted that love, you, you know that all other loves are, are, are insufficient. You know that the love of your wife is rich and sweet, but it ain't the love of God. You know that the, the love of your friends is rich and sweet and great and wonderful, but it's not the love of God. There's nothing like it. How do you go back to a lesser love, a false love, a fake love? How does a stone-carved image love a person? It's dead. It's deaf. It's mute. It can do nothing. In fact, some of them can't even stand up on their own. We hear about Dagon in the Old Testament, which kept falling over. And Paul, Paul, Paul is not imagining these things. He's not guessing or guesstimating he's not assuming he has evidence of their attempted return back to the old dead religion or in their case a new one that was unfamiliar but in the end it's still old dead religion he has evidence that they're trying to go back to it he's not assuming because the judaizers are there and they're clever in their speech he knows that they're going back there's evidence we see that evidence in verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years, exclamation point. There's the evidence. Hmm. Hmm. The Galatians were starting to follow the Jewish calendar of rites as a matter of religious obligation. That's what the days, weeks, months, seasons, and years is. These are Jewish holidays, Passover, tabernacles, tents, all of the things that Jews do in an effort to self-justify. They do it today. And here are these Christians saying, well, I've got to be like these Jewish Christians and I've got to submit to these things too. I've got to place myself under the Mosaic law, which says I have to observe these days and weeks and months and seasons and years. Paul is saying, no, what are you doing? Now, these people, these Galatian Christians were acting like Pharisees, right? The mortal enemy of Jesus in a sense. 
They observed the whole Jewish system of special holidays. The Feast of New Moon and the festivals of Passover and Tabernacles, all of these things. This is what the Galatians are trying to do. Actually, they are doing it. Relapsing into, into such religion was a, a sign of profound spiritual ignorance. And this is why Paul used the word stoicheion, elementary. That's the English rendering. He uses it twice in this chapter, verse 3 and verse 9. What you're doing is elementary. You're trying to go back to elementary school by following these ridiculous things. And, and let's keep in mind that, that Paul followed these things most of his life because he was a devout Jew, the Hebrew of Hebrews. And here he is as a liberated Christian saying, I don't have to observe those days anymore. They don't have anything to do with my justification. And here you people are celebrating all the holidays that I got delivered from. This is why he says, stoicheion, stoicheion, elementary principles of the world. Observance of, and listen carefully, observance of these sorts of things, of, of religious rites, of religious rituals, of religious holidays is elementary religion. Did you hear me? Hmm? Marking out your calendar to observe holidays, religious holidays, that is elementary religion. We have gone beyond that. Well, you're thinking, what about Christmas? Hold on. What about Easter? Hold on. Although I'd say both of them have been insanely paganized, and even in the church. Let, let, let me say this again because it's very important that you hear me. Observance of religious rites of religious rituals, of religious holidays, that is elementary religion. And I will add this, elementary religion is for spiritual children. It is not for spiritual adults. Spiritual adults, those who are, who in, they are in Christ by grace through faith, those who have been justified by faith alone, that's a spiritual adult. A spiritual adult is somebody who's not trying to justify their self through works of the law. That's an adult, right? What do they do? They practice faith, not religious rites. Spiritual adults maintain a relationship with God, not religious rituals. Spiritual adults worship God all year long, not just during holidays such as Christmas and Easter. What do we see playing out in America? We see the observance of religious holidays by the masses. I go to church once a year on Christmas or twice a year on Easter. That is what Paul is condemning. I think it's amazing that, that Americans think that if I go to Christmas on those two holidays, I'm headed toward heaven. They don't acknowledge Christ at any other time. In fact, they don't even do it on that day. They just go there and go through the motions. But it's amazing to me. What a deception. That is the, the observance of a religious holiday in an attempt to justify yourself before God. Well, I'm okay with God because I literally... For 62 years of my life, I went to church on Christmas and Easter, even when I was in my mother's womb. I'm okay. I'm ready for heaven. Where are you at with Jesus? I don't even know who that is. 
but I'm okay. You will spend eternity in hell wondering what happened to Christmas and Easter services. And religious rites and rituals, no different. Doing all these Hail Marys and Our Fathers and all this stuff. Nonsense. Elementary religion for children. And what are children? They don't know any better. Religion that literally demands observance to rites and rituals and holidays is elementary and childish. A kiddie pool. The Galatians were spiritual adults, veteran swimmers who belonged in the deep end of justification by faith alone. They had no business going back to the kiddie pool. That's just weird when you see an adult sitting in one of those things. <laughs> Why are you in there? You're trying to cool down? No, I love elementary religion. Nobody's ever said that, but that's what it, the illustration and I have to admit, I've put my rear end in a kiddie pool or tool in desperation because we live in the Central Valley. Who hasn't done that? Literally, who hasn't done that in the room? <laughs> but for illustrative purposes, that's what it represents. You know, we, we are spiritual adults. We are justified by faith alone. We trust in Christ. We've been saved by grace, we are English channel swimmers. I'm not, I'm too fat. I would be a bobber. Or they would use me to drag the channel. Terribly out of shape. But this is what we were designed for. We're adults. And I would say there is nothing wrong with taking a day to praise God for the birth Resurrection of his son, it's okay. Elsewhere, Paul wrote, the one who observes the day observes it to honor the Lord, Romans 14, 6. Why would we observe those days? To honor the Lord, to celebrate the birth or resurrection or whatever it is. There's a difference. We don't, I don't say to myself, well, I need to get to the Christmas service. I do say to myself, I need to get to the Christmas service because I have to preach. But I never say to myself, I have to get to the Christmas service so I can be justified before God, so he can somehow be pleased with me and I can earn his favor or earn salvation. I don't say that. Do you? Do you think that at the end of the day, attending a few of these things is going to help you? It somehow makes you a better Christian or it justifies you before God? This is what Paul is talking about. These people, out of a, a pure desire to follow the instruction of these horrendous, worthless, oxygen thief false teachers. We're going to follow them and we're going to follow all these days to tell us to do it because that's how we'll be right with God. We'll have, we'll have the, the double protection of, of faith in Christ plus these works of the law. Man, nothing will stop us. And Paul says in chapter 1, you who do this, you are cursed. You are disconnected from God because you've deviated from the true gospel. Adding a, a little works to our justification is like adding leaven to the dough. It ruins the whole loaf. 
there is a world of difference between you know, having a couple of these days where we just praise God and reflect on what He's done for us. There is a world of difference because that's what we do. There is a world of difference between that kind of action and that kind of heart and attitude. There's a world of difference between that and between you know, uh, the optional observance of such a day and then making it mandatory as a means of justification. There's a world of difference. need to be careful with this stuff. These Galatians had no business going back. No business going back. Paul was shocked when he learned that they were adhering to the Jewish religious calendar. And verse 10 is actually a, a, a sharp rebuke. That's a correction. That's not an observation. Notice once again that exclamation point at the end. The Old Testament is, is, is replete with stories of God disciplining His people for practicing false religion, for trying to justify themselves through religion. It is replete with examples of God literally bringing discipline, the hard hand of discipline upon His people. False religion like what the Galatians are flirting with and playing with here, it is no joke. No joke. Paul was concerned. That's an understatement. But he was equally, if not more, discouraged. We see this in verse 11. He says, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Wow. To have a, a, a regular... Christians say something like this to you would be shocking. To have the Apostle Paul say it would be deconstructive. It would shred you. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. The Galatians' return to false religion caused Paul to, to speculate, to question his own ministry. That's ultimately what he's doing here. He was beginning to wonder if he had labored over the Galatians in vain. That word labored represents everything Paul did and went through for these people. He didn't just go throughout Galatia and preach the gospel. He was almost killed in Lystra. He was stoned to the point where people thought he, he was drug outside of the city gates and stoned and people thought he was dead. They left him for dead. And then all of a sudden he pops up and he's all jacked up and he's got contusions and blood all over him and but he was alive. This is not just that I, I, I labored over you with the gospel. I, I, I labored over you with my own safety. I almost was killed for you. I, I got sick. He talks about that, right, in the chapter. He talks about how when I came to you, I, I, I wasn't burdensome to you because of my ailment. You, you took care of me. So we know that he got sick. He got terribly sick when he was out there on this missionary journey. I, I have labored over you in the gospel. I, I, I almost got killed because of you. I was sick and almost mortally killed by this illness. I, I, I've suffered greatly. 
all the, the travel and the illness and the loneliness because the gospel brings loneliness to those who are faithful because everyone will flee from them. Think of Jesus in the garden. It brings, he, he experienced this travel, this terrible travel and the illness and the loneliness and all of the struggles and, and the preaching and teaching and, and discipling them. And let me tell you something right now. It is not easy to disciple people. It can be heart-wrenching at times. Everything that he went through, including the stoning at Lystra that almost took his life, Acts 14, 19, he is saying to them, did I do all of this for nothing? That's what he's saying. I bet you never thought in your whole life as a Bible studier that you would never see somebody like the Apostle Paul say something so fatalistic as this. What are we seeing in this text? We are seeing a man... He's not God. The expectation that people have for men like him and men like me is too high. We fail. We get mad. We get disappointed. We get upset. Do you not know that we are sinners saved by grace just like you? But somehow that doesn't apply to me. I have to be above that. I found so much comfort in this text. Because if Paul can feel, if he can feel like this, then it's okay for me to feel the same way. It's okay for you to feel the same way. But I would say I'm not going to justify it because I think he's wrong. Did I do everything I did for you for nothing? Those words haunt me. This is a man who is throwing his entire ministry in front of him like on a screen and saying, has this all been for naught? Have I wasted my time? Have you ever felt like that? That you have toiled and you have labored in the gospel, and you have seen fruit, and then that fruit gets snatched up by something, and you say to yourself, good Lord, what is going on here? Have I labored over them in vain? It gets worse for him because down in a, in a few verses he says, I gave you the truth, now I'm your enemy? This is not something that any pastor or apostle ever anticipated or expected to come through the people whom he loves. We expect it from the world, but we don't expect it from our brothers and sisters. And they have the most venom, lethal, a cotton mouth. They can be so cruel. Every faithful pastor, faithful elder, every faithful church planter, every faithful evangelist, every faithful street minister, every faithful Christian who's been faithful with the gospel, they have felt as Paul did here at one point or another. Amen. When the people you love serve and teach turn against you for one reason or another or go back to the worthless principles of this world or disconnect from the, the congregation and disappear without a trace or 
act obstinate and unrepentant when their sin is lovingly exposed, I, I guarantee you discouragement can creep in and, it can, and these thoughts can enter your mind. Have I labored over them in vain? This will happen. And there is an answer to this question, and it is no. 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 You have not labored over them in vain if you have labored in the gospel. If you have labored in the word of God, you have not labored over them in vain. If you have labored over them with psychotherapy, psychobabble, CRT, or whatever other crap the world is putting in the church today, you have labored over them in vain. But if you have labored in the mighty word of God, you have never labored in vain. Never. You don't labor in vain when you labor in the word. The answer is no. The word of God never, ever returns void. Never. It always accomplishes God's purposes. It always succeeds at achieving whatever God desires for it to achieve. Isaiah 55, 11. Take comfort in that verse. The word of God it is not a, a vain labor, a vain effort. In fact, it, it saves whom God plans to save. Psalm 107, verse 20. It sanctifies whom God had planned to sanctify. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in your word, Father Jesus prays. It, it hardens those whom God planned to harden. Exodus chapter 9, verse 12. The word of God is not a vain effort. It, it, it chastens whom God plans to chasten, Revelation 3.19. It, it guides whom God planned to guide, Psalm 119, verse 10. Your, your word is a lamp unto my feet. It is profitable for, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. If we give people the word of God, our labor is not in vain. If we give them something else, something contrary to the word of God, something in place of the word of God, then we are wasting our time and theirs. That was the time for an amen. Paul is doing here is I think he's experiencing a, a momentary lapse in focus when he wrote verse 11. I think that's what's going on. Like his eyes had, had drifted off of the Lord onto his circumstances. But who could blame him? This is easy to do, is it not? Especially when the people we love and care for put themselves in spiritual peril. That's what the Galatians were doing. You want to mess up your pastor, put yourself in spiritual peril after he's been preaching the gospel to you for about eight, nine, ten years. You want to see him get spun out and not know what direction to go in? Do that. Oh, oh he'll come back to his senses in a short amount of time just as Paul did, but you want to spin me out, do that. I would just say that our minds can go to a lot of dark places when these things happen, can't they? 
And if we speak, what happens? Our words, they, they reveal our hidden thoughts, right? Have I labored over them in vain? Have I failed as a pastor? Have I failed as a parent? Has my spouse failed? Has my church failed? Has God failed? And this is all demonic nonsense. It's all demonic nonsense, these, these thoughts and, and speculations as to, to whether our ministry failed or not, provided that it's grounded in the gospel and we're preaching the gospel, to even think that it failed, that's demonic nonsense. That's ridiculous to think that way. But we can understand why we do it at times. The shock that we experience in any kind of scenario kind of blinds us to reality, does it not? What we must do in these moments of, of incredible weakness and lack of focus is repent and refocus on Christ quickly or Satan will gain a stronghold and somehow use us to create more destruction. This is what he does. He's waiting for this. Well, I want Phil to get so frazzled that I use him to disrupt the entire church. You've got to remember something here. The devil's ultimate goal is to discourage faithful men, faithful men to the point of walking away from gospel ministry and even walking away from the church. A pastor can experience so much travail and difficulty in the church that he will start to listen to Satan and say, I think it's time for me to get out of this. I'm there. It's demonic. It's not the Spirit of God. This is not the Spirit of God saying this to me or leading me to think this way. It is the devil. The devil has been after me for years. He's clearly after Paul here. But I need to remember the greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. 1 John 4, 4. I need to remember that God has rescued me from every satanic snare thus far, and I'm confident he will continue to do so until I am safe in his abode in heaven. God has delivered Paul, I think, from discouragement so many times that he couldn't count. He has done the same thing for me. He has done the same thing for you, has he not? Some of you right now at this very moment are in the throes of discouragement. God can lift you up out of that. But you have to turn your eyes off of your circumstances and put them on the Savior. Paul's lapse of focus did not last long. The very next line shows that he regained the right perspective and returned to his normal style of gentle reasoning. <laughs> and I would say this, even though his words in verse 11 are hard and difficult and undoubtedly, 
undoubtedly shock the snot out of his readers, even though we might feel that they're out of line. I guarantee you they, they accomplish something positive here because those harsh words sometimes are necessary to get people's attention. Amen? That's a, an excuse I've been telling myself for years. <laughs> right? I mean, there are just some things that you try to reason and reason, and, and, and it, it's, it's like the people are unresponsive, and then you have to get their attention. I think it's a bad idea, Jimmy, to put your finger in the light socket. Get away from the light socket before I whoop your hind end. Which one is he going to respond to? He didn't listen to me. It could be that the hard words that Paul spoke in verse 11, basically asking his audience if he had wasted his time on them, may have grabbed their attention and led them to godly sorrow and repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10 This would be the response of spirit-filled Christians. Godly sorrow, repentance. Do we understand what Paul has said to us here in this Galatian church? Good Lord, he's wondering if he wasted. What have we done to cause this? We better turn from this fast. That's the response of an actual Christian. Or it could be that the Galatians got angry and tuned out. That is the response of unbelievers. They have no taste for godly discipline, no desire to hear these sorts of things, and they bug out. They get mad and they bug out. Happens all the time. My question to you as I wrap up is, are we under spiritual attack? Are we discouraged? Do we feel like giving up? Hmm? Hmm? Well, I better, not, I better not confess that or act like that because I've got a facade to maintain. I'm a really, really strong Christian. Bull! Mm -mm. Are you under attack? Are you discouraged? Do you feel like giving up? Here's, here's what you do. Here's what we do. We need to remember what we were before Christ and rejoice in the work that God has done and is currently doing. We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world and under the, the brutal guardianship of the law. We were enslaved to idols and false religion and, and, and trying to earn our way into heaven. But God delivered us through Christ and now we swim in the deep end of justification by Faith, that's the meaning of Galatians 4, 8, and 9. What is Paul saying? I know where you're at. I need you to just look back for a moment and remember where you came from. Maybe that'll be enough to jar you and to cause you to think, why am I going back? Oh, my goodness, he just said he's wasting his time on us. Oh, I better get right. Secondly, we need to refocus and fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, Hebrews 12, 2, right? We reflect and remember the past, but we don't dwell on it, and we need to immediately refocus on Christ. 
Thirdly, we need to get back into reading the Word of God, the Bible, because what does it do? It strengthens us spiritually. Psalm 119, verse 28. Show me a weak Christian, I'll show you a Christian who doesn't stay in the Word. Seriously. Well, I get into it every Sunday. It's not enough. It's not enough. Thirdly, we need to pray, and I would add Paul's detail, without ceasing, because our Heavenly Father hears our prayers and gives grace in our times of need. Psalm 116, verse 1, Hebrews 4, 16. Spend time in prayer. A lot of time in prayer. All the time, but especially during these difficult times. And I tell you, when you're discouraged, the last thing you want to do is engage the things of God. In our Adamic nature, we want to flee from the things of God. Do you know how many people step away from church for weeks, or if not weeks, if not months at a time, because of discouragement? They cut themselves off from the source of encouragement, the people of God, the Word of God. The first thing we do is run from the things of God when we're discouraged. It isn't the things of God that caused us to get discouraged. It's the things of this world, the elementary principles, false religion, sin. That's what brings discouragement. The devil tricks us into thinking the best thing I can do is run from, his, from Christ's church. Are you kidding me? You should run to it. Camp out in the front here, but be armed because there's crazy stuff going on. happen to us we don't think back from what we've been delivered from we don't focus on christ we, we we're, we're not into reading the word of god enough we, we don't spend time in prayer and lastly if you want to get through these things you've you've got to put on the whole armor of god because we cannot stand against the schemes of the devil without it ephesians 6 11 we have to put this armor on every day some days I feel like I can barely get out of bed. Now I've got to hoist all this armor on. Take the sword of the Spirit with you. This is how discouragement and the feelings of wanting to give up are destroyed. Remember, refocus, get into the Word, get into prayer. Keep that, get that armor on and keep it on. Go to that passage in, in Ephesians 6 and read about the armor and put it on your body every day. You, you, you take showers, I hope. You put clothes on every day. How are you not girding and dressing yourself for spiritual battle? You put a shirt on, put the word on. You know, there, there, there is... There is a connection between me being weak right now spiritually and wavering and struggling and battling. I'm not even battling. I've allowed myself to get discouraged. But there is a connection between where I am right now and three weeks of vacation of not being in the Word and not being in prayer. That's what's happened. And I'm done. 
comes back, baby. Come back with me. 